In this episode, I speak with Professor David Sloan Wilson. David is one of the world's foremost evolutionary thinkers and a gifted communicator about evolution to the general public. He is a sunny distinguished professor emeritus of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University in New York. In addition to his teaching and research work, David is president of Pro-Social World, an organization which aims to catalyze positive cultural change to consciously evolve who we are, how we connect with each other, and how we interact with the planet. He is passionate about making evolutionary science more accessible to a wider audience, and in 2019, he was invited to speak with the Dalai Lama about his work. David is the author of several books on evolutionary theory, including This View of Life, Evolution for Everyone, Darwin's Cathedral, Does Altruism Exist?, and the co-author of Pro-Social, along with Paul Atkins and Stephen Hayes. In this conversation, we discuss some of the key insights and themes from David's first novel, Atlas Hugged. This book is a must-read for anyone interested in evolutionary theory and its implications for how we can best understand human nature and also how best to live in this world. In the novel, David weaves together a lifetime's worth of research and academic work into an engaging narrative, which offers science-based solutions to some of life's biggest questions, including how we can solve the problem of excessive individualism, how to create a meaning system that is both highly motivating and based on scientific truth at the same time, and how we can use a managed process of cultural evolution to consciously evolve as a society. You can get the novel at atlashugged.world and learn more about David's work at www.darwinianrevolution.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to help us get these ideas out there to a wider audience, it would mean a huge amount if you could leave a short review on your favorite podcast provider, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, David, welcome to the show. Um, For anybody that doesn't know you, isn't aware of your work, could you tell us a bit about your background and the work that you do? Well, I'm first and foremost a scientist, um, an evolutionary scientist. And then um, after that, I'm a nonfiction writer. Um, eager to communicate to a large audience. I'm also an activist, eager to put these powerful ideas to work in the real world. And then last of all, I'm a novelist, which is um, having written my first novel, Atlas Hugged. But I come by the craft easily because my dad was also a novelist, Sloan Wilson. So uh, I think that might suffice for a very quick introduction. Brilliant. Okay. So the work that you've done is quite remarkable in the sense of the the multiple different domains that you've covered. So just to name a few, you've studied things like water striders, um, you've contributed to academic journals on economics, you've made a big contribution to, uh, you're, you're doing a lot of work in entrepreneurship at the minute, um, you're, you've done a lot of work on like teamwork as well. And whenever I hear you talk about these things, you... Um, you don't attribute this to, you never brag about it or you never boast about it, but you attribute it to the power of the theory, the theory of evolution. And could you maybe tell us a bit more about that and why this is such a, the, the, the scope the scope that this, this theory has, if that makes sense? Right. And all of this is reflected in the novel in addition to uh, our real life. And uh, I think that when we go back to Darwin, And that amazing idea, and Wallace, of course, we shouldn't leave out Wallace, 
um, this amazing idea that made so much sense just from the get-go. Like it was like an epiphany. It was like, you know, oh, I, I remember the moment when I got the idea in my carriage or whatever it was. And it was a eureka moment basically uh, that uh, explains so much. So the three ingredients, everything varies. Those differences make a difference in terms of survival and reproduction. And thanks to heredity replication, then things change. Organisms become adapted to their environments. I just said it, you know, that idea, that theory was that simple that I could say it in less than a minute and could explain so much and started to from the beginning. So Darwin and Wallace were great naturalists. They had all of these mountains of information, natural history information that they had absorbed and assimilated along with their peers. But now this theory made so much sense of it. You know, the fossil record, uh, the geographical distribution of species, identity by descent, of course, those wonderful contrivances all falling into place like so many pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. So, and so that enabled them to function in so many people back then might have been amazed. They might have said, you know, Mr. Darwin, how is it that you can study so many things? Uh, you know, all creatures, great and small. Um, um, and you know, make so that must make you a polymath. And he would say, probably, well, no, it's the theory, dummy. <laughs> it's uh, it's the theory that enables, and you can too. So um, fast forward to the present, where we are now, is is not a completion of the of the process. That that idea, nothing in biology makes sense. Nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. Had made enough progress by the 1970s so that someone like Theodosius Dobzhansky, the geneticist, would say nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of, of evolution. Darwin said there is grandeur in this view of life at the end of the origin of species. That was Darwin's expression. Dobzhansky's expression in the 1970s, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. That was only starting then. Um, and will always be in progress, but uh, but the same statement for uh, everything associated with humanity, culture, and policy, that is still what has not yet taken place in what I'm about. So, so uh, I'm the guy who says there is grandeur in this view of life and applies it to all these things that you listed, religion, I mean, animals, all, th all species, including our own, all things cultural, uh, a passport to the study of all subjects. That's what that's what's on offer, and is put in fictional form um, in uh, Atlas Hard. Hundred percent. Even things like psychotherapy and changing behavior as well. Like it, it comes in there too. And you you collaborate with people like Stephen Hayes and Tony Biglin as well. So there seems to be an amazing amazing power in this. In this well, let me, uh, now, let me elaborate on it and also thank you for being a vehicle for communicating it to a, a, um, a larger audience, that this is something which this kind of generality uh, can take, does take place at the highest levels of academic work, basically, at the top in terms of science and, and uh, scholarship. 
And I do a lot with economics. A lot of that is reflected in the in the novel. So about you know a third of my time is probably spent rethinking economics from a evolutionary perspective. But then also about a third of my time is spent and at the therapy and training psychology level, including a special issue of Clinical Psychology Review, one of the premier academic journals with Stephen C. Hayes and and um, Stefan Hoffman on evolution and clinical science. So this very much bears upon individual therapy and training, and then all the way up to groups and and multiple levels all the way up to the planet. So uh, all at the level of, at the highest level of academic scholarship and and science published in the in the elite journals um, to uh, everyday life. So yeah, that's uh, walking through academic walls is the way that it's put in, in Atlas High. The, the term you use, I think, is ivory archipelagos. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but there seems to be all these um, disciplines within academia and they're not talking to each, to each other. They don't, there's no crossover between boundaries, but you seem to be, um, you seem to be trying to bring these together through evolutionary theory and a big a big theme in atlas hugged is this theme of catalysis and it seems like a lot of your work goes about um goes about bringing about this catalysis catalysis could you tell me about why that's important and why you decided to make that such a big focus of the of the novel so i'll try to explain both these are you've raised two key concepts and uh, in the novel and in real life one is catalysis and the other is a concept of a archipelago. And catalysis, you might know from chemistry, is that you know you might have a chemical reaction that's taking place very slowly. You can sprinkle in a substance in very small amounts that will cause that reaction to take place much, much faster, or does the magnitude faster? That's called a catalytic substance. And what the catalytics molecule does is it takes other molecules and pulls them into a orientation that binds them to each other. And then the catalytic molecule is released to repeat the operation. And that's why it's not used up in the, in the process. And so that's catalysis in chemistry. Can there be catalysis in cultural evolution? Can there be some rate of cultural change taking place slowly or not at all? And is there something you can do, something you can sprinkle in, add in small amounts that causes cultural evolution to speed up, maybe by orders of magnitude, something that can take place in years rather than decades or centuries or, or um, not at all. So that's the concept of cultural catalysis. And it's useful just to give a sense of possibility that we actually can do something in years. We don't, doesn't have to take a long, and in fact, we already know this, that cultural evolution does take place that fast, is taking place that fast, although not in directions that we might want. So, you know, I mean, every decade is different than the last now. We have things like Facebook and the gig economy that are ubiquitous and only originated 10 or 20 years ago. So the idea of, of cultural evolution taking place at warp speed that's not fiction, that, that happens, but it doesn't lead to good out. Well, actually, it often leads to very good outcomes. We're talking, for example. So it leads to great outcomes. So let's not, let's not 
ignore the wonderful uh, advantages of of the uh, of the of modern of modern times, but then also it has this very dark side that uh, we can't ignore either. And so they need to manage this not only for it to take place fast, but to but to manage it is is essential. So so one big message, which is everything is applies both to the novel and, and to the real world is laissez-faire doesn't work. It is simply not the case that lower level agents, be they individuals or corporations or nations, anything less than the whole earth, just pursuing their own interests does not lead as if led by an invisible hand for the common good. So the metaphor of the invisible hand, the idea that everyone can just separately pursue their interests and that will robustly benefit the common good is profoundly untrue. It is untrue in economics and it is untrue in the rest of life. And so if there's any pernicious idea that deserves to be thrown into the ash heap of history, it is the idea of laissez-faire. And, and uh, before I talk about the archipelago concept, let me first set the stage for the novel. Um, Atlas Hugged is written as a sequel to Ayn Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged. Even if you've never read that novel or anything else by Ayn Rand, you probably know what she and the novel stands for, which is a celebration of individualism, basically. The greed is good ideology that we associate with neoliberal economics and individual, uh, the sanctity of the individual, basically. And um, self-interest is the the pursuit of self-interest is the highest moral um, ideal. And so um, the idea of writing a sequel uh, was not my idea. It actually took place during a workshop where I was working with economists to reformulate economics. And someone observed that since Ayn Rand had been so successful promulgating her ideas through fiction, shouldn't be someone be doing the same for our ideas. And so it was at that point that the novelist within me emerged and the title Atlas Hugged um, flashed into my mind immediately. And so the plot of the um, novel is uh, the, the protagonist of Atlas Shrugged was named John Galt One. He was a brilliant engineer who brought about a strike of the doers of the world. Um, and uh, so uh, my protagonist is his grandson, John Galt III. Um, I transported Ayn Rand into my novel in the form of Ayn Rand, who is John Galt I's lover and um, John Galt III's uh, grandmother. Uh, their son, John Galt II, uh, becomes a, a libertarian media giant, think Rush Limbaugh, who parlays Ayn Rand's subjectivist empire into a um, into a, um, um, a world-destroying media empire. Um, the centerpiece of Atlas Shrugged is a speech, a big long speech that John Galt I gives. And so in uh, my novel, John Galt III, our hero challenges his father, John Galt II, to a duel of speeches, which is the, uh, which is the climax of, uh, of my um, uh, novel. And the whole idea that this can be better conveyed through fiction than through nonfiction. I mean, Ayn Rand had a whole 
uh, philosophy of objectivism that she developed. Uh, but um, mostly it was a fiction that was so powerful. And in just the same way now, when I gave a lecture to your weekend university and I presented these ideas in nonfiction form, I had two hours, which is generous. I went well enough, but there was so much material to assimilate. And you know, I just know that this happens to me when almost every time I give a talk is my audience has this overstuffed look um, as if I had forced them to enter a hot dog eating contest. And, um, and um, you know, there's so much, maybe they're interested, but I mean, it's only the start of a, of a line of inquiry. And I hope that they'll go down that line of inquiry, but uh, it seems enormous. Um, and a story manages to serve as a vehicle for a worldview, for a meaning system. And I know we're gonna to get to a discussion of what is a meaning system, what is a world um, view, but whatever it is, a story is a vehicle for imbibing it basically so much more than nonfiction novel. And so uh, that's true for stories in general. And it's why the whole nature of storytelling of fiction is one of those things that we can reflect upon from an evolutionary uh, uh, perspective, along with such things as economics and, and religion or so on. But be that as it may, I now have taken all of this, this view of life, and I've tried to turn it into a story, which is e easier to imbibe than, than uh, in nonfiction form. And of course it must be both, but the story at least can give a sense of possibility and then, and then uh, motivate basically the much longer term project of assimilating the nonfiction information um, and, uh, and of course putting it into action. Okay, so against that background, um, the concept of an archipelago of, um, of uh, knowledge, let me now actually read from, so why is there so many disciplines? Why do we have this fragmentation of, of, um, of knowledge? Is it just the specialization of knowledge or is there more to it? And so that conversation uh, is, takes place in the novel, um, Atlas, uh, uh, John Gall Cree, has now come under the wing of his wise mentor, Howard Head, who is the evolutionary biologist. And they meet once a week in a kind of a karate kid-like fashion. And, um, and they're now, he's, Howard Head is now explaining why there is um, um, so many branches of, uh, of um, knowledge. And, um, and Howard is saying, but there is more to the story than the accumulation of knowledge. Scholars and scientists don't turn out facts and memorize them at random. They assemble them into configurations that have meaning for them. In many respects, the cult of scholars is playing the same game as the mosaic artists. And I'll explain the metaphor of the mosaic artist in a minute, except with a more stringent set of rules. They are also trying to assemble a meaningful big, they are also trying to assemble a meaningful big picture but no clipping or discarding of facts and no outright falsehoods are allowed. Now let's take a little detour through biology, which provides another example of how evolution adds insight at an elementary level. That's the point to make is that these insights from evolution are at an elementary level. It's the basics of evolution that one needs to learn, not the, not the advanced um, 
detail. Um, let's say that I colonized two islands with the same species of bird, 100 birds on each island. There is no dispersal between islands. What is likely to happen? The populations will diverge over time. This was elementary. Anyone who, anyone who took an evolution course could answer that question. Why? In part, just by chance. The mutations that arise on one island don't necessarily arise on the other. The frequencies of existing genes also change by chance, especially when the populations are small. This is called genetic drift. Correct. What if each island has more than one ecological niche, say mangrove swamps and mountaintops? The species on each island are likely to split into different species to occupy different niches. Correct. And all of this is elementary, right? Totally. I even learned it in high school before I got to college. Right. Although to Darwin and Wallace, it was a revelation to discover that the diversity of life could be explained by a combination of isolation and ecological diversification. That was one of those simple truths, elementary in retrospect, that came crashing down upon them. Now, by the way, Howard said the word now, I could tell that the climax of the conversation was at hand, but I still couldn't fathom how it would go. Imagine taking 200 scholars, shuffling them like a deck of cards, and dealing them onto two islands isolated from each other, 100 scholars to an island, then have them do their scholarly thing. What will happen? Now I had a massively pleasing aha moment, similar to what I experienced with Eve's Australian cane toad story. The two groups of scholars will diverge. Even when they stick to the facts of the matter, they will churn out different facts and assemble them into big pictures that are meaningful for them in different ways. And the, and the counterpart of speciation would be mutual incomprehension. If they stayed isolated long enough, they wouldn't be able to understand each other, even if you put them together again. And more generally, the diversity of scholarly knowledge is like biological diversity. It can be explained on the basis of isolation and ecological diversification. And what did Sherlock Holmes say to his dear Dr. Watson? Elementary. I was so delighted that I had to stand up and do a victory dance to Howard's amusement. And so now back to the real world, the idea that, that scholarship takes place in all of these different um, disciplines with very little communication among disciplines does lead to this kind of archipelago concept, a meaning system that are internally coherent, but are not easily relatable to each other. And so the unification that took place in the biological sciences has yet to take place for human-related knowledge, not just academic knowledge, but practical knowledge. If you go, for example, to the world of business, you'll see many examples of business governance methods and change methods that work, but always exist within boundaries beyond which they are unknown. And so there's the concept of an archipelago, which is something that needs to be overcome in order to basically generalize these principles that work. Brilliant. And evolutionary theory seems to be maybe the most effective way we can do this because it spans across almost every every discipline in life, I suppose. Um, now, one of the key themes in the book, David, is this idea of meaning systems. And in your other book, This View of Life, you say that um, the theory we have about the world limits what we can see. And 
use a metaphor as describing, I think a meaning system is sort of like a flashlight. So maybe if you could tell us a bit more about what a meaning system actually is and um, why this is so relevant and important for, for what we're talking about here. Yeah, I'll do that in steps now. Uh, step one is to talk about our basic perceptual, perceptual abilities, sight, sound, smell, touch. Um, in all cases, they're distortions of the real world. We do not perceive the real world as it is. Evolution has been more frugal than that. Um, we only sense things that are relevant to our survival and reproduction. Electric eels can sense mild electrical currents. We cannot. We see only a little tiny slice of the light spectrum, um, only a portion of the sound spectrum. Even that we distort. Um, light exists as a continuum of wavelengths. We see discrete colors. And so, um, and so what we see is, uh, is not directly the real world. That's why science, both in terms of the concepts, our theories, and also our instruments. Uh, with instruments, we can perceive mild electrical currents. We could never do otherwise as needed to actually perceive the world as it really is. So that's if that's true for our basic perceptual abilities that evolved by genetic evolution, it's also true for our symbolic systems that evolved by cultural evolution. And the very fact that we have symbolic systems, that we are a symbolic species in modern evolutionary terms is called dual inheritance theory. It means that there's two streams of inheritance, not just our genes, but also our symbols. And part of um, this really revolutionary um, uh, synthesis that's, that's taking place is to think of our symbols, um, our meaning systems, as like our genes that influence the way we are just as much as our genes do and also co-evolve with each other. That's called dual inheritance theory. And it's the basis for what we were talking about earlier, basically rethinking psychotherapy and training from an evolutionary um, um, uh, perspective. So, now I have to gather my thoughts and where we uh, were, bring it back to where we were and then cut this part out. <laughs> um, so we were talking around uh, meaning systems and- Right, the... okay, so okay. So if we look at, at um, the way we see the world, which is very much a, a cultural matter, it's not just us as individuals. If you're a Christian or if you're an objectivist, no matter what you are, religious or not, religious, you have um, a set of symbols and beliefs and so on, which structure your world, which tell you what to pay attention to and how to interpret it and so on and so forth. And then that causes you to behave. And to the extent that the meaning system is a product of cultural evolution or personal evolution, the good news is it, it causes you to behave adaptively in that world. You actually end up doing the right things but it also blinds you to um, so much else. That's why it's like a flashlight. So it illuminates what's immediately around you, but it blinds you to every, it leaves everything else in, uh, everything else in uh, a darkness. And 
almost all meaning systems, just like our perceptual system, include adaptive falsehoods, distortions of reality. Not only do some things become just plain invisible, but other things are strongly represented in the, in the meaning system, but actually do not exist at all in the real world. And of course, the gods are among them. That's almost the definition of the supernatural, are agents that exist in our minds, but do not exist in literal form in the real world. Nevertheless, they're very important for how we behave in that, behave in that world. And that's not restricted to religions. Secular meaning systems are chock full of adaptive uh, falsehoods. There's a wonderful book. One of my favorite books is called The Invention of Tradition by um, two historians, Hogsbaugh and, and uh, Ranger. And it's about how, for any culture, how they imagine their past and their ancestors is at least as important as how they imagine their gods. And so every culture invents a past for itself and attributes great antiquity to that past, which does not exist. And any capable historian can reveal that it does not exist. And so when we talk about adaptive fictions, don't confuse that with religions. And so the way that's represented in Atlas Hugged is that John Galt III realizes that his, this philosophy of objectivism is chock full of adaptive fiction. And his main love interest, Eve Eden, comes from a, as you might guess from the name, a traditional Christian uh, background, um, which is also one of these meaning systems, adaptive fictions, as she puts it, the tissue of lies. And when she tells her story to John, she reveals that uh, she lost her virginity to her pastor who persuaded her to have sex for Jesus. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I'll take up a little story for, um, for there. So he was basically using Jesus as a tool to make her do wrong. Um, um, she says, I thought I would let it pass, but then he wanted to continue the relationship. That's when I started to get angry, not only at him, but at the whole church. I mean, it's not just that he wanted to continue having sex, but he was telling me that Jesus wanted me to continue having sex. If he was using Jesus as a tool in that way, how else was he using Jesus as a tool? The more I thought about it, the more I saw my religion as a monstrous charade. Think of all the malarkey that you're expected to believe. Stuff is totally loony to a non-believer. We were supposed to take his gospel truth, and we did, adults and children alike. The Bible can't even get its story about Jesus straight. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John all tell different stories that contradict each other at every turn. Does it seem strange? Doesn't it seem strange to you that a group of people might regard Jesus as by far the most important person in their lives and not care that the four accounts of him don't match up? I wasn't just angry that our pastor was using Jesus as a tool to make me do wrong. I also became angry that Jesus and everything else I was taught in church was being used as a tool to make me do right. Why couldn't right and wrong just be discussed in straightforward terms instead of through this elaborate tissue of lies? And so the idea that, that um, a meaning system is a way to see right and wrong without, but 
the choir is peering through a tissue of lies is an epiphany for John because that's how he also thinks about objectivism. And so the Holy Grail, basically, their search is to find a way to tell right from wrong. In other words, justified entirely by scientific knowledge without peering through a tissue of lies. That's the, that's the quest, basically. And that's what, that's what um, an evolutionary worldview enables one to do and expands that meaning system from a flashlight um, to a floodlight and then the sun as it is uh, portrayed in the novel. <laughs> okay. So that, that's um, the, the protagonist, John Gold III, has two kind of major breakthroughs in the novel. Um, so the first one is when he discovers um, the what you call the cult of scholars and basically just basing um, his view on reality, on truth, rather, rather than adaptive fiction. But then he has another breakthrough. Can you tell us about that and why that, why that plays such an important uh, role in the book as well? Yeah, to say that a bit more about the first though, writing the book was uh, very formative for my own thoughts and very much intertwined, not only with my scientific work, but also uh, current events. And so, and so, I mean, of course, we know all about fake news now and its dangers and the whole basic virtue of truth telling. Um, and the concept of norms, why is it that, for example, in the Me Too movement, you could get bad behavior by powerful men taking place forever throughout history and for it to be largely not condoned, nobody approved of it, but they had just thought that that's the way it must be. And then suddenly it becomes so deeply wrong that it becomes shameful to do and there's actual consequences. And so a norm becomes established that makes what was formerly uh, uh, something that was never approved but still took place, all of a sudden, very effectively policed. Okay, now that hasn't completely happened, but there's been a massive, massive swing in that direction. And the same goes for truth telling. There's many contexts in which telling the truth is so important that if you don't, it's shameful and there's very bad consequences. For example, lying under oath or falsifying data if you're a scientist. There's many contexts like this. And so the idea that truth telling is a strong norm, strongly enforced is, is commonplace, but is also something that can be eroded. And that's what's taken place um, largely in modern life. So, so basically establishing the norm of truth telling is something is uh, John Galt's first epiphany. He would not basically be a mosaic artist just clipping the facts in order to fit into a big, into a nice um, uh, picture. He would now belong to the cult of scholars with strong, strong uh, truth-telling norms. And part of what takes place in the novel is that he succeeds at establishing that norm more widely in everyday life. So that kind of blatant fake news is something which is shameful, just like fucking your secretary. So, so um, that's the first epiphany. Uh, the second one is to realize, um, and I make this point um, all the time in my nonfiction writing, 
evolution doesn't make everything nice. It was the most concerning thing about Darwin's theory from, again, from the very beginning is that unlike the Christian worldview, which portrayed a world that is supposed to be harmonious from top to bottom, created by an all-powerful and beneficent God, there has to be, I mean, the whole universe has to be like a giant clock, right? That was the pre-Darwinian view of the world. But in the Darwinian view, with competition among individuals for survival and reproduction, that led to a lower level of functional organization of harmony that we associate with a watch or a organism such as an insect, but that then could lead to chaos and discord, even at the level of an animal society, could be something that would be a horrible society in human terms, or despotic, uh, with individuals um, um, fighting against other uh, individuals. Just today in, on Twitter, I saw an amazing image that um, they kind of portrayed this. It was a, a German sculpture, I believe, and it must have been, I don't know what era it was made, but what it showed in sculptural forms were two men climbing a ladder and the one that was ahead on the ladder and he was holding something, which was presumably of something of value, was just kicking the man below him to just kick him off the ladder. And they were both ugly men. I mean, they had, you know, big protruding stomachs and, 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 uh, and it was a beautiful visual representation of the kind of destructive competition which exists in nature all the time. And so when you take a walk in the woods, you might think it's tranquil, but for the animals out there and the plants, it's a ghetto. It's a ghetto and that kind of rapacious behavior, including sexual behavior for for sure, the kind of kind of sexual conduct that I just described, which in humans we can make immoral and at least sometimes effectively police in many species is just the way it always was and will be. And it's and it's written in the anatomy, such as the penis of the water strider which is uh, described in lurid detail in the, um, in the novel. And, and, um, and so, so basically this makes evolution very convergent with Buddhism. And, and when we think of the mapping of religions onto science, then Buddhism fares fairly well um, in terms of saying the four noble truths, the first truth is life is full of suffering. Um, and evolution affirms them. And the second truth is it's caused by craving. Every individual striving uh, for its own benefit and then imposing suffering on others. Well, let's check that one off from an evolutionary perspective. The third noble truth is that there's a path to end suffering. And then the fourth noble truth in Buddhism, of course, is, is the Buddhist faith. Um, but then, um, the epiphany for the second uh, breakthrough for John Gall III is that um, actually evolution provides the fourth noble truth. And, and if you look inside any healthy organism, you find a world free of self-imposed suffering. Inside every healthy organism is a world that's just a symphony of cooperation. And of course, there's life and death in in an organism, but it's always in the service of the 
of the uh, life of the of the larger whole. And so therefore, what needs to be done is to expand the concept of organism and to and to turn the whole earth into a single organism. There's your fourth noble truth. And it's possible to follow that path purely as a purely as a scientist. So this maps on to Gaia, the concept of Gaia, familiar to many. Um, the ethic of a whole earth, familiar, familiar to many, that's not new. In fact, increasingly it's the only unit that makes sense as the largest unit, but this provides a scientific foundation for it that um, is true both in the, in the real world. That's what we need to do, basically. We need to um, create a, a planetary level organism and is uh, the plot of the novel. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I'd like to just go back to what you said there about the, the level of the organism is a can be thought of as a movable boundary. So it doesn't just have to be restricted to one individual. And we have examples like this in nature through like um, beehives and colonies. And something that I find fascinating is this idea of uh, major evolutionary transitions. I think, I don't know if it was put forward by, was it Maynard, Maynard Smith? I'm not, I'm not sure who, who, who came up with it, but um. Do you think that, or I suppose, what evidence is there that human beings have gone through a major evolutionary transition and that human groups can be thought of as almost like a multicellular cellular organism? Right. And so this is part of what I covered in my lecture to your weekend uh, university and in any basic lecture that I give is the idea that everything that we call an organism evolved not by small mutational steps from other organisms, but as groups that became so cooperative that they uh, qualified as superorganisms in their own right. So the idea that individuals evolved from, uh, from groups, in addition to by small mutational steps, that happens too, of course. So, uh, so this idea, everything has roots. And so I think the truth of this idea, this idea began when, when cell biologists were just looking at nucleated cells and they saw that some of the organelles like mitochondria and, and chloroplasts looked a lot like bacteria in their own right. And so the idea that these were miniature communities was um, dates back to the early days of cell biologists. Uh, but it was Lynn Margulis in the 1970s that established it for nucleated cells as symbiotic communities of bacteria. And then not until the 1990s that John Maynard Smith, who you mentioned, and Urs Spothmary, who's still living, um, generalized this. And we could begin to see the long history of life, beginning with the origin of life as cooperating groups of molecular reaction as a series of major transitions. So we have the origin of life, we have protocells, bacterial cells, with such things as chromosomes, nucleated cells, multicellular organisms. And now we begin to find groups that, are, that aren't bounded by skin. So the eusocial insects, other eusocial species, because there's now that's gone beyond insects, then human evolution, uh, genetic evolution, creating 
small ultra cooperative groups, and then the evolution of symbolic thought, providing that second stream of inheritance. So now we have dual inheritance, which we discussed, and then cultural evolution leading to larger and larger societies with many collapses along the way. This is not linear. This is an important point. Very often big thinkers uh, like to talk about stages of human history, um, uh, which is not quite right. It's, it's more like a tug of war, which has always taken place and is still taking place today between lower level selection um, um, and, and higher level selection, but yet with the net increases in the scale of, of society. And so I could drill down now and I could talk, for example, about uh, the emergence of democracy in ancient Greece as this process. And I have wonderful conversations with people. And the axial age, the emergence of the major religions, Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, um, Confucianism as major transitions, basically cultural innovations that created a kind of a social glue holding societies together at a larger and larger scale, but always in the context of competition, very often military competition, not always, but often at still larger scales. And so the idea of a universal mor morality uh, is very new. Um, hard to find examples before the 19th century. If you go back, you know, in, for example, in Christianity, what do you find? Well, you find the Crusades. And then you find the Protestant Reformation in which the Protestants regarded the Catholic Pope as the anti-Christ, between group conflict, baked into the religion, between group conflict. The only religions that gave the appearance of universal morality were the weak ones, the powerless ones, like early Christianity, which didn't have any political or military power, and so therefore the meek will inherit the earth, we turn the other cheek, we render unto Caesar, and, and, and so on. But as soon as the Christian religion gained power, then it became basically, uh, I want to use the word predatory, um, and the religion of the Roman Empire, right? And so, and so, uh, and Buddhism is no different. We like to think of Buddhism as different, but uh, I had the honor of a one-hour conversation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama about two years ago. And uh, in preparation, I did a lot of reading on Tibetan Buddhism, well, taking place in an incessant warfare in feudal societies that were never questioned by the religion. And, and what Buddhism did, which is an accomplishment, so I admire Buddhism a lot, but what it did was basically increase the scale of between group competition increase the scale of between group competition. It provided a social glue that, that um, and so, and, and there's no epic in human history that was different than that. And so the idea that we're, that we're gonna create a cooperation at the scale of the whole earth, well, that's new in, in history, uh, but that doesn't mean it can't happen because evolution is all about the, the future being different than the past. So 
So it can happen. And in fact, in some ways, it's like the final step of a long journey. So going from the current nation states up to a global governance, um, all the resources are at, at, uh, at hand for that. That can happen. But of course, you have to do it in the right way. <laughs> and it happens in 100 days in the novel. <laughs> um, very interesting. So a lot of people, when we talk about this, say the only way that you'll unify the Earth is that... Um, oh, I know what's coming. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, know I know what's coming. The aliens are coming again. Keep, go, keep you, going. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think this. You think that... Um, Basically, what we have to do is we have to make the earth, um, we have to make the earth sacred. We have to view it as a sacred, I don't want to say object, but um, yeah, we have to treat planetary welfare as like our, as our target of selection. We have to keep this in mind when we're planning things. And that has to be at the forefront of all countries, planning uh, companies, individuals. And you use four symbols in the, I think it's four symbols in the book to sort of illustrate this sort of multi-level selection um, view, view of life. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that? And I, I don't want to throw too much at you, but while it's, while it's on my mind, um, it, some of the evidence, I think, for um, some of the evidence, I think, for the fact that we might have gone through a major evolutionary transition, I think is fascinating and things like, I think it's Paul Bingham's a stoning hypothesis and the fact that we've got whites in our eyes and the, these different mechanisms for regulating, regulating our behavior. I think this is fascinating. And I'd love to, maybe if you could expand upon that as well. Okay, that is a lot. But uh, uh, let's begin with, again, the, um, the genetic human transition, why we're so different from other primates, has to do first and foremost with social control social control. Uh, in a chimp community, uh, basically, uh, uh, there's a little cooperation, but a lot of competition among members of the same community. And basically, bullies get their way. Bullies get their way. It's a, it's a largely despotic society. If not at the level of individuals, then at the level of small alliances competing against other alliances within the same individuals. Just imagine if Donald Trump won as, um, and that kind of, that kind of uh, bullying uh, took place, as has happened many, many times in the past. And there's many, many, many current examples of societies that are run by elites for their own uh, benefits. They're called extractive societies and they're always existed in abundance. They're always an ever-present danger for any society. And of course, the only way to prevent that kind of thing is for social control, is for basically for members of the group to have the wherewithal to resist bullying and every other form of self-serving behavior. So if, if, if you don't have social control, forget about it. And, what evolved, and that's what evolved in our distant ancestors, the ability to um, uh, effectively suppress bullying behavior. Um, people to read on this is Christopher Bohm and Richard Rangan in his book, uh, The Goodness Paradox. And so there's a lot of scientific evidence for this. And it explains the very nature of morality. Morality has two dimensions. Uh, 
a compulsory dimension. We have norms, ways that we are supposed to behave. And if we don't, if we behave immorally, there's punishment for that. You don't have a choice to behave uh, morally. And then there's a voluntary dimension in which we want to help others, motivated by emotions such as sympathy, empathy, love, friendship. And so those two things go together like a yin and a yang. And the compulsory dimension is required to provide a safe social environment for the voluntary dimension. If you exist within a strong moral community, then you can safely be pro-social, extend yourself on behalf of others because you will not be exploited by those, by those bullies. So the, com the compulsory dimension protects the, the uh, voluntary dimension. And that's as true for modern groups as it is for ancient groups. Because that took place in genetic evolution, that resulted in human psychology, basically, and such things as the psychology of moral uh, systems. And then along with it came such things as the whites of our eyes, which are basically communicating information to others. It's astonishing. In fact, it's really astonishing, uh, so much that you can scarcely believe it, that chimps, for example, are clueless about such things as uh, pointing. That for us, pointing something out is such so native. Maybe even babies do it. But, but the act of pointing is basically uh, a tiny act of kindness that I'm I know that something is in your interest and I'm going to an effort to point it out to you. And that evidently does not take place in chimp uh, uh, communities. There's experiments done on chimps in which a chimp is offered two options, something for itself or that same thing for itself plus something for another chimp. And they don't care they're indifferent to that choice, which is more or less telling you that they're indifferent to the welfare. And it's shocking because that's so unhuman. And so here we have a case where we share 99% of our genes with chimpanzee. We're so similar in so many respects, but we're hugely different in this one respect of, uh, of um, functioning as cooperative units and social control is absolutely uh, key to that. Now, bring me back to the other things that you were asking. Well, I'm just going to ask another question. In the, in the meantime, um, this, if this is true, that we did go through a major evolutionary transition, um, it just, it strikes me that it's such a shame that we have had this this individualistic narrative in our culture for the past, I don't know what, 150 years or whenever, whenever this first emerged, it seems like it's such a shame to subject uh, such a cooperative and social species like ourselves to that kind of narrative and the destruction that might be causing in society. And uh, many of the themes in, in the book sort of touching this, I suppose. And as John Galt is sort of moving through the, through the novel, he is, um, he's immersed in different communities and it seems that um you you've really put a focus on that because the 
I think the way you say it is that the, the the fundamental unit of uh, human life is is the small group. Is that right? And yeah, that's um, and again, we can talk about this both in scientifically or in the case of the case of the novel. I mean, this is huge. And what you said now about individualism, of course, is is true. It has long roots, but uh, did not become truly dominant until the middle of the twentieth century. I mean, I was talking just yesterday with one of my uh, uh, economist colleagues, Dennis Snower, and he was repeating what I, I hear many times, but it was nice coming from him because he is a, uh, I mean, such a highly respected economist that uh, this whole uh, shareholder value model, the only business of, uh, of responsibility of a business is to maximize profits for its shareholders. That's 1970. That is that is you know um, uh, that reason. Before that, if you looked at at, at the business world, uh, corporate heads saw themselves as needing to be solid citizens within a larger uh, economy, and so on and so forth. So with, there was some kind of sea change that took place in the middle of the twentieth century um, across the board, including my field of evolutionary biology. That was the selfish gene era, the theory of individual selection. When I entered uh, graduate school at that, that time, that was the dogma and that's what I oppose basically. So that was how I made my reputation was by opposing individualism in evolutionary biology. But, um, but it was rampant and in, in throughout uh, culture and you're absolutely correct that this is what needs to be uh, what needs to be replaced and uh, a wonderful colleague I have who's I feature in my book this view of life uh, uh, Jim Cohen has developed something called social baseline theory which notes that the one constant in human evolution, there's very few constants because, because we lived in so many different ecological habitats, so many different climatic zones, occupied so many different ecological niches. What was constant about our ancestral past? Always, Jim observes, we functioned in the context of small and highly cooperative groups. And so that means that always we had a combination of our personal resources and social resources to draw upon. And so therefore, our brains and bodies, in ways that we are only beginning to understand, are constructed to integrate both social and personal resources when making our trade-off decisions, including metabolic decisions, such as how much to allocate to our immune systems, or how much circulating glucose should we have in our um, bodies? How should we seek out you know, sweet things to to eat and things like that based on the presence and absence of social uh, resources. And so that means when you isolate an individual from a cooperative group context, you're putting it in a stress zone, in a stress zone. So this explains the, the, uh, the, the stress associated with loneliness uh, better than ever before. And, and it, it, it literally treats the, the human as, as needing 
a small appropriately structured because there has to be that social control. There's nothing about smallness per se. It must have those protections of a strong moral uh, system as like an ad is to its colony. So the best thing you can do for a person is to, uh, the best thing for an individual to do is to uh, function in the context of small, appropriately structured groups doing meaningful things. So in the novel, the column of symbols, the dot is an individual and the circle is the small group. So that's one major transition you might say, is to create this cellular level of society. And in the, um, in the novel, uh, there's a number of small communities and appropriately structured and all of them are described as, as close to a utopia as you'll get. There's the village school that John Galtree goes to. There's the Christian community of Eve Eden. There's the redneck community um, on Timber Ridge. There's the biological station. These are all very different from each other, but they all share these properties of small, nurturing, appropriately structured communities. And they're all described in utopian terms. And so I think that's an important to stress that on the one hand, this is a totally atheist novel. Uh, Christianity is described as a tissue of lies along with objectivism, Ayn Rand's uh, a forum. And yet at the same time, the kind of community that uh, Christian communities do very well at, at creating is described in utopian terms. Wonderful places. John Galtree loves to exist uh, within it. And so there's a respect paid to these uh, meaning systems that um, um, is an important part of going beyond them in terms of building a, a new meaning system that is founded on, on uh, uh, scientific knowledge and, and, and the creation of a, a larger uh, scales of, of organization. Brilliant, okay. So I, I, before, before we finish up, David, I'd like to ask about um, conscious evolution. So this was almost maybe a dirty word in evolutionary theory for a long time or a, a dirty phrase. Um, what do you think that was? And do you think it is possible to consciously evolve both as an individual and as a society as, as we move forward, especially after COVID? Yeah, this is great to end up on. And it, it does illustrate the uh, complex history of evolutionary evolutionary thought. And the fact that it became so constricted for all of its advances in the 20th century, that it became so constricted around genetic evolution. I made this point in my lecture to the uh, weekend university. Um, and it comes up all the time that you know, a lot of what we think about evolution is actually only applies to genetic evolution, Mendelian evolution as it developed in the first half of the 20th century. And now, as it turns out, not even to that. And so, but if you look at Mendelian genetics, then you have the situation where variation is random. You've got mutations that are 
random with respect to what's selected for. So the environment is what's causing differences in survival and reproduction. And what the genes are doing is just offering up arbitrary variation. And then, so there's no purpose, teleology, consciousness in genetic variation, it's just random. And there's no purpose, consciousness, teleology in what gets selected is just, you know, the, the longer neck of the giraffe compared to the shorter neck of the, of the giraffe. So there's no purpose anywhere. And that became a very important point to make against the background of um, other thinking, including by Darwin, by the way. Darwin was Lamarckian. This whole thing you know, owes itself to Weissman, not Darwin. And so um, often these things get translated into like received histories that are very simplistic compared to the actual histories and they're quite patriotic. So Darwin got everything right and then Lamarck got everything wrong and now we know and you know and so that kind of simplification um, is something that needs to be resisted and one reason why good scholarship is, uh, is, um, um, is required. And so uh, part of that broadening out going beyond that gene-centric view uh, basically puts conscious evolution back in the picture um, a big time in a couple of ways, even Mendelian genetics. This is what's called the extended evolutionary synthesis. It turns out the mutations aren't random and you shouldn't expect them to be. What happens is, is that that blind process creates organisms which are not at all blind, that are teleological. So organisms, of course, they're purpose-driven. You could say that life is purpose-driven. The simplest life form is purpose-driven. And especially when organisms evolved the ability to, for some kind of open-ended learning, the kind of thing we associate with B.F. Skinner, trial and error learning, then you get what is sometimes called the Baldwin effect, is that because organisms are capable of learning, they end up doing stuff, occupying new niches or, or, or so on. And then that alters the selection pressures operating on genes. And so learning becomes a kind of a, the tip of a spear, you might say, that, that, that points in a direction and then genetic evolution follows. And so now you say blind evolution produces purposeful organisms and then they that rubs off on the evolutionary process. And then the, all of this was like exciting in at the beginning of the 20th century, which was when Baldwin and others were formulating those, those ideas. And now um, that kind of thinking has just become more and more advanced. And, 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 so, and so just the mechanistic study of genetic evolution and and the entire you know, physiology and metabolism and, and things like that is importing much more purpose and consciousness um, into it. And Dennis Noble is a important figure there as we speak. In fact, what I was doing this morning before this interview was uh, working on, a, on an exchange with Dennis Noble on these, um, on these um, uh, topics, but there's more, but wait, there's more. <laughs> 
as soon as we begin thinking about uh, human cultural evolution, then of course there's a conscious component. How could we think otherwise? And if you think of such things as artificial selection, what is artificial selection? Well, of course it's a form of evolution. I mean, Darwin used artificial selection in order to illustrate his concept of natural selection. The only thing that sets artificial selection apart from natural selection is that humans determine the target of selection. That's the only difference. In every other respect, it's a process of very random variation. But in this case, for a human selected target, in other words, it's a it's a form of conscious evolution. Artificial selection is we consciously breed traits and come on, I mean, it's so simple. Why would anything like this be taboo? But now when you begin to look at such things as sexual selection, individuals of one sex selecting traits in, other, in the other sex, uh, there's a concept of social selection, social traits in one, in, in individuals being selected by other individuals. And now the concept of self-domestication is a total hot topic in, in evolution. Uh, people like Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, their survival of the kindness is all about self-domestication, a book I mentioned previously, The Goodness Paradox by Richard R. Rangham. Uh, basically what that's saying is that the kind of selection that humans imposed on each other is not much different than what they imposed on domesticated animals. It was docility, it was compliance, it was not being reactively uh, aggressive. We weeded them out um, in our own species in addition to our domesticated plants and animals. So once you go beyond just the narrowest, narrowest strictures of Mendelian genetics, both for genetic evolution plus for cultural evolution, the idea of evolution having a conscious component, there's also always a blind component, by the way. Um, and it's important for there to be a blind uh, a component. I mean, we can be very conscious about the target of selection. What is it we're trying to bring about here? And yet at the same time, as far as the solution, the variation part, we need to be, we need that to be, I mean, we don't know. And so therefore we have to try stuff out. And so there, there's your blind part of a, of a, selection, uh, a selection process. So at the end of the day, then what's needed is for, not only for to say that evolution has a conscious component to be totally normative and, and, and central to the way we think about evolution, but we need to be more conscious about it than ever before. And we'll never bring about Earth as a, a, as a uh, uh, planetary organism if we're not conscious about it. So, so uh, conscious evolution becomes, becomes uh, absolutely central. 100%. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time today to share some of your knowledge with us. I feel that if I had five hours, I probably probably still wouldn't even scratch the surface, but it's been fascinating to talk with you and just learn more about the work that you've been doing. Um, 
for anybody listening to this who is interested in developing, I, I suppose, a, a strong meaning system as we've covered in this in this talk. Um, the the ideas in Atlas Hugged, and also if you supplement them with this view of life and David's other book, Evolution for Everyone, I think that can provide a very sort of strong basis for that. And I think there's, you know, I, I've been just fascinated by when I, when, I, when I came across this work. So David, I just want to say I really appreciate what you're doing and what you're putting out into the world. It's, um, I think it's making a huge difference and you're, you're having this sort of catalytic, catalytic effect that I think you're hoping to have. So just keep doing whatever you're doing. And um, where can people find you online? What, what, where do you recommend people to go after this interview? Well, thank you so much, Niall. And I do regard you as a fellow traveler, basically, on, on this. And uh, so uh, if you want to read Atlas Hugged, uh, there's only one place to get it because it's not sold. It's gifted. Therefore, available only at atlashugged.world. That's easy to remember, atlashugged.world. And then um, my book, This View of Life, is a regular book, so it can be purchased anywhere. And um, Pro Social World, prosocial.world, is the nonprofit. And all proceeds from Atlas Hugged goes to Pro Social World. And then uh, the online magazine, This View of Life, same title as my book, is a, um, oh, has amazing resources. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of articles on anything and everything from an evolutionary perspective. And we are attempting to uh, create a engagement circle. We call it the Ostrom Circle. We, uh, we haven't mentioned Eleanor Ostrom by name, but she's a huge figure in all of, um, of this, where uh, anyone who wants to uh, both learn and then become engaged, learning to action, will have an opportunity to do this. And so for me, the optimal path is if you like fiction, then Atlas Hard. If you like nonfiction, then this view of life. And either way, think about how you could actually put this into action. Because really, um, if, if what's in your head is not resulting in action um, and constructive action, then you need to alter what's in your head. So um, all of this should lead you to want to do things. And then, um, uh, we, we're trying to create a huge field worldwide to engage people at whatever scale they're in a position to operate at. Everyone has themselves as an individual. And did you know that you're a kind of a group that could become more cooperative? That's what therapy and training is. Uh, everyone has an opportunity to form into a, uh, appropriately structured groups doing meaningful things. Everyone on earth has that. Uh, opportunity. And then some people have the opportunity to do this work at a larger scale, such as a corporate head or, or a nonprofit or a government agency or so on and, and so forth. And so uh, we need to work at all scales. And we're trying to do uh, basically accomplish in the real world what takes place in the in the uh, a novel, a kind of a movement you might, uh, you might say. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll we'll link to that in the in the show notes for this episode. So, David, thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, you too. Keep it up. Thank you.